0: Fog by Dana Burnett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Fog by Dana Burnett. I had come out of the city, where storytelling is a manufactured science, to the country, where storytelling is a byproduct of life. Mr. Siles had arrived to paint my piazza as per a roundabout agreement between my cook, my cook's cousin, my cook's cousin's wife, who had been a Miss Siles, and finally, Mr. Siles himself. If that sentence is somewhat involved, so was my contract with Mr. Siles. In the country, a semicircle is the shortest line between two points. I came at the strange story of Wessel's Andy in something of the same circuitous manner. Mr. Siles, as I have said, had arrived to paint my piazza, but after a long look at the heavens and the heaving sea, he opined that it would be a wet day and that the painting had best be left till tomorrow. I demurred. I was acquainted with the tomorrows of this drowsy main village, but while we were arguing the point, a white ghost began to roll in from the deep. Fog, said Mr. Siles. Yes, I admitted grudgingly. He stared into the thickening mist with an expression that puzzled me. I have seen the same look upon the face of a child compelled to face the dark alone. I mistrust it, said Mr. Siles, simply. Mistrust the fog. He nodded, his iron-gray beard quivering with the intensity of the ascent. Take it in a gale of wind, he said. That's honest weather, though it blows a man's soul to kingdom come. But fog... I suppose strange things do happen in it, I replied. It was a chance shot, but it struck home. Strange, cried Mr. Siles. You may well say strange. There was something happened right here in this village. I settled myself comfortably against the naked piazza railing, and Mr. Siles told me this story. He was born a thousand miles from Deepwater. His folks were small farmers in a Middle Western grain state, and he was due to inherit the farm. But almost before he could talk, they knew he was a queer one. They knew he was no more farmer than he was college professor. He was a land hater from the beginning. He hated the look and the feel and the smell of it. He told me afterward the turn in a furrow with a plow set his teeth on edge, like when you scrape your fingernail along a piece of silk. His name was Andy. When he was about 13 year old, he found a picture of a ship in a newspaper. It was like a glimpse of another world. He cut it out and pasted it on the attic wall over his bed. He used to look at it a hundred times a day. He used to get up in the middle of the night and light a match and look at it. Got so, Andy's father came up early one morning with a can of whitewash and blotted the whole thing out against the wall. The boy didn't say a word until the ship was gone. Then he laughed, crazy sort of laugh. That's the way they go, he says, right into the fog, he says, and never come out again. He was sick after that some sort of a fever. I guess it made him a little delirious. He told me he was afraid they were going to blot him out, same as the picture. Used to dream he was smothering to death, pleasant things like that. Queer, too. When the fever finally burned out of him, he was nothing but skin and bones. His people saw he was too sickly to work, so they let him mope around by himself. He used to spend most of his time in the woodshed, whittling pine models of that whitewashed schooner. He was known all through those parts as Wessel's Andy, Wessel being his family's name. See for yourself what Wessel's Andy meant. It didn't mean Andrew Wessel, by the grace of God, free, white, and twenty-one. It meant that good-for-nothing brain-crack boy over to Wessel's. That's what it amounted to in plain words. But the strange thing about that name was how it followed him. It came east a thousand miles, and there wasn't a town but it crawled into on its belly, like a snake into long grass and it poisoned each place for him, so that he kept moving on, moving on, always toward deep water. It used to puzzle him how strangers knew to call his name hindsight foremost. not any puzzled me. He hadn't been in my place two minutes asking for a job, but I say, what's your name? And he says, staring hard at the model of the lucky star schooner that hung over my counter. I'm Wessel's Andy, he says, never taking his eyes off the schooner, Likely he'd done the same absent-minded trick all along the road, though not for just that reason. I recollect the evening he came into my place. I was keeping a ship supply store in those days, fittings and supplies down by the old wharf. He shuffled in toward sundown, his belongings done up in a handkerchief, his clothes covered half an inch thick with dust. "'I want a job,' says he. "'What kind of a job?' says I. "'Oh, anything,' says he.' All right, I told him, you can start in here tomorrow. I've been looking for somebody to help around the store. Then I asked him his name, and he answered, Wessels Andy. Some of the boys was standing round and heard him say it. He was never called anything but Wessels Andy from that time on. Quietest young fellow ever I saw. Plenty willing to work, but not very strong. I paid him $4 a week and let him bunk in with me at the back of the store. He would have made more money somewhere else, but he wouldn't go. Naturally, there were a good many seafaring men in and out of the shop, and some evenings they used to sit around yarning to one another. Often I've seen Wessel's Andy hunched up on a soapbox behind the counter, his eyes burning and blinking at the model of the lucky star on the opposite wall, his head bent to catch the boys' stories. It seemed as if he couldn't get enough of ships in the sea. And yet he was afraid to go himself. I found that out one night when we were locking up after the boys had gone. "'Have you ever felt yourself to be a coward, Mr. Siles?' he says, in one of his queer fits of talking. "'Why, as for that,' I says, I guess I've been pretty good and scared a time or two. "'Oh, I don't mean that,' he says. I don't mean scared. I mean afraid, day and night, sleepin' and wakin'. "'No,' I says, and nobody else with good sense would be. Ain't nothing in this world to frighten a man steady like that, unless it's his own sin.' Wessel's Andy shook his head, smiling a little. Maybe not in this world, says he, white and quiet. But how about other worlds? What are you driving at, says I? You mean ghosts? Not ghosts, he says, lowering his voice and looking out the side window to where the surf was pawling sand. Just the feeling of ghosts. Come to bed, I says. You worked too hard today. No, please, let me tell you please sit up a while. This is one of the times when I can talk. He grabbed my hand and pulled me down to a chair. His fingers were as cold as ice. Then he dragged his soapbox out from the counter and sat opposite me a few feet away. I'll tell you how I know I'm a coward, he says, and he told me everything up to the time of his leaving home. You see, he says, I had to come. It was in me to come east. I've been four years working my way to open water, and I've had a hell of a time. Hell of a time. but. It was in me to come. There's been a ship behind my eyes ever since I can remember. Wakin' or sleepin', I see that ship. It's a schooner like the lucky star there, with all her topsails set, and she's disappearing in a fog. I know, he says, looking at me so strange and sad it sent the shivers down my back. I know I belong aboard of that ship. All right, I says, though I didn't think anything of his queer talk. "'All right, then go aboard of her. "'You'll find a hundred vessels up and down the coast "'that look like the lucky star. "'Not to a seafaring man, maybe, but you're a farmer. "'You couldn't tell one from t'other. "'Take your pick of the lot,' I says, "'and go aboard of her like a man.' "'But he just smiled at me, a sickly sort of smile. "'There's only one,' he says. "'There's only one, Mr. Siles. "'When she comes, I'll go aboard of her, "'but I won't go like a man.' Then all at once he jumped up with a kind of moaning noise and stood shaking like a leaf, staring out the window at the sea. There, he says, kind of choking. There, I saw it then. Oh, God, I saw it then. I grabbed him by the shoulders and shook him. You saw what, I says, tell me. His fingers dug into my arm like so many steel hooks. At the end of the old wharf, a sail. Look, don't you see it? I forced him down onto the soapbox. Sit there, I says, and don't be a fool. It's low tide, I says, and there ain't enough water off the old wharf to float a dory. I saw it, he says, dragging the words out slow as death. I saw it, just as I always knew I would. That's what I came east for, a thousand miles. And I'm afraid to go aboard of her. I'm afraid, because I don't know what it's for. He was rocking himself back and forth like a crazy man, so I ran and got a drop of whiskey from the back room. Here, I says, drink this. He swallowed it straight like so much water. In a few minutes, he quieted. Now then, I says, you come to bed. This night's entertainment is over. But it wasn't. About midnight, I woke up with the feeling that something was wrong. First thing I saw was the lamp burning high and bright. Next thing was Wessel's Andy, sitting in his underclothes on the edge of the bunk, my whiskey flask in his hands. "'Mr. Siles,' says he, as straight and polite as a dancing-master, though his eyes burned, "'I have made free with your whiskey. I have drunk it all, I think.' "'Great Josephat! I says, "'there was pretty nigh a court in that flask.' "'I hope you don't begrudge it,' says he, still smooth as wax, "'because it has made me feel like a man, Mr. Siles, like a man.' I could talk and even laugh a little, I think. Usually, I can only feel. Usually, I'm afraid. Afraid of what, Mr. Siles? Afraid of going aboard without knowing what for. That's the fear to eat your heart out, Mr. Siles. That's the fear to freeze your blood, than not knowing what for. I was wide awake by this time and wondering how I could get him back to bed. I didn't want to lay hands on him more than you would want to lay hands on a person with a nightmare. So I started to argue with him, like one friend to another. We were a queer-looking pair, I'll warrant, sitting there in our underclothes, facing each other. "'Look here,' I says, calm as a judge. "'If it's your fate to ship aboard of a vessel, why don't you go peaceable and leave the reasons for it to God Almighty? Ain't anything holding you, is there?' "'There is something holding me,' he says, and then, very low. "'What is it, Mr. Siles, that holds a man back from the sea?' Saints and Skittles, I says, jolted out of my play actin'. You ain't gone and fallen in love, have you? He didn't answer, just sat there staring at me, his face whiter than I ever saw a living man's face. Then all at once he turned his head, exactly as he would have done if a third person had walked into the room. He was gazing straight at the lamp now. His eyes had a sort of dazzled look. No, he says. No, I won't tell that. It's too beautiful. And before I could jump to catch him, he pitched into a dead faint onto the floor. It was two or three days before he was well enough to go to work again. During that time, he hardly spoke a word. But one afternoon, he came to me. Mr. Siles, he said, I'm queer, but I'm not crazy. You've been kind to me, and I wanted you to know it wasn't that. There are people in this world, he said, whose lives aren't laid down according to the general rule. I'm one of them and that's all he ever said about his actions the night he drank the whiskey. It was a week or so later that Wessels' Andy heard the story of Captain Salisbury and The Lucky Star. I suppose he was bound to hear it sooner or later, it being a favorite yarn with the boys. But the way of his hearing it was an accident at that. One afternoon late, a fisherman from Gloucester put into the harbor. He had carried away some running gear on his way to the Newfoundland banks and was stopping into port to refit. After supper, the skipper came into the shop where the boys was sitting round as usual. First thing he saw was that model of the lucky star on the wall. What has become of Dan Salisbury? Says he, squinting aloft. What has become of Dan Salisbury? They used to go mackle in with the fleet. So they told him what had become of Dan Salisbury, three or four of them pitching in together. But finally it was left to old Jem Haskins to tell the story. In the first place, Jem had the longest wind, and in the second place, his cousin Allie used to keep house for Captain Dan. So Jem knew the ins and outs of the story better than any of the rest. As he began to talk, I saw Wessel's Andy pick up a soapbox and creep closer, and this is the story that he heard. Captain Dan Salisbury was a deep-sea fisherman, owner and master of the schooner Lucky Star. He'd been born and raised in the village, and was one of its favorite citizens. He was a fine big man to look at, quiet and unassuming in his ways, and fair in his dealing, a ship and a shore. If ever a man deserved to be happy, Dan Salisbury deserved it, But somehow, happiness didn't come to him. First, his wife died. He laid her in a little plot of ground on the hill back of his house, took his year-old girl baby aboard the Lucky Star, and sailed for God knows where. He was gone ten months. Then he came back, opened his cottage on Salisbury Hill, and set out to make Little Hope Salisbury the richest girl in the village. He pretty nigh did it, too. His luck was supernatural. His catches were talked about up and down the coast. He became a rich man, according to village standards. Hope Salisbury grew up to be the prettiest girl in town. She was never very strong, taken after her mother in that way, and there was an air about her that kept folks at a distance. It wasn't uppish or mean. She was just as kind as an angel, and just about as far away as one. There wasn't a youngster in the village but would have died to have her, but she scared him speechless with her strange quiet talk and her big misty eyes. Folks said Hope Salisbury wouldn't look at a man, and they were right. She looked straight through him. It worried Captain Dan. He didn't want to get rid of Hope by a long shot, but he knew he was failing, and he wanted to see her settled with a nice, dependable boy who could take care of her after he'd gone. There was a man for every woman, said Captain Dan, but Hope didn't seem to find her man. She got quieter and quieter, lonelier and lonelier, till the captain decided something was wrong somewhere. So he asked her straight out if there was anybody she wanted, anybody she cared enough about to marry. She said no, there wasn't. But she said it so queer that the captain began to suspect it was a case of the poor child loving somebody who didn't love her. It took him a long time to find the courage to ask the question. But when he did, she only smiled and shook her head. Hope, says the captain, there's only one thing in the world that makes a young girl wilt like you're wilton, and that's love. Tell me, what is it you want, and we'll go searching the seven seas till we find it. I don't know what it is myself, the girl answered. It's as though I was in love with someone I had met long ago and then lost. Lost can be found, said the captain. We'll go round the world in the lucky star. Within a month's time, the old schooner was overhauled and refitted and made ready for sea. It was June when she sailed out of the harbor, but she hadn't gone far enough to clear the cape when a fog shut down and hid her from sight. Most of the village was standing on the wharf to wave goodbye but they never saw the lucky star again. The fog lasted all day and all night, and by morning of the second day, Captain Dan Salisbury and his daughter were a part of the blue mystery caused the horizon. They never came back. The lucky star was lost with all hands in the big blow-off Hatteras two years ago this summer. So little hope Salisbury never found her man, and that branch of the Salisbury family died, root, stock, and branch. As old Jem broke off, I glanced at Wessel's Andy. The boy was crouched forward on his soapbox, his eyes burning like two coals in the shadow. When he saw me looking at him, he shrank back like a clam into its shell. That night, as we were undressing in the back room, he turned to me all of a sudden. Mr. Siles, says he, is there a picture of Miss Hope Salisbury in this village? Why, I answered, I don't know as there is, and I don't know as there isn't. Come to think, I guess Captain Dan's cousin, Ed Salisbury, might have a likeness. He inherited most of the captain's property. Probably found one in the family album. Which house is Ed Salisbury's? Third to the right after you climb the hill? You aren't thinking of going up there tonight, are you? Wessel's Andy was kind of smiling to himself. He didn't answer my question, but he got into bed all right and proper, turned his face to the wall and was soon breathing quiet and regular. I never suspected for a minute that he was shaman. It was just four o'clock in the morning when the telephone in the store began to ring. I looked at the clock as I jumped up to answer the call. I was on a party wire. My call was thirteen, one long and three shorts. I'd never thought about it being unlucky till that minute, but it struck me cold to hear that old bell boring through the early morning silence. "'Hello,' I says, taking down the receiver. "'This Ed Salisbury,' said the other party. "'Come up to my house right away and take your crazy clerk off my hands.' I found him sitting in the parlor when I came down to start the fires. Asked him what he was doing, and he said he'd come to steal things. If you ain't up here in 15 minutes, I'll call the deputy sheriff. I was up there in less than 15 minutes. I cursed that fool boy every step of the way, but I went. I don't know why I took such trouble about him. Maybe I was a part of that fate of his. Ed met me at the door of his cottage. Siles, says he, there's something queer about this. It's against nature. That boy, I've been talking to him, Swear she came up here last night to steal, pried open one of the front windows, and got into the parlor. That's enough to send him to jail for a good long bit, but I'm blessed if I want to send him. I've got a suspicion that the lad is lying, though why any human should lie himself into the penitentiary instead of out of it, blamed if I know. You got any ideas on the subject? What was he doing when you found him? says I. Well, that was funny, too. He was sitting at the table with the lamp lit, as home-like as you please, and... And what? Looking at that old family album of ours. Ed, I says, I'll go bond for that boy. Don't say anything about this down at the village. Some day I'll tell you why he came up here at the dead of night to peek into that old album of yours. It ain't quite clear in my own mind yet, but it's getting clearer. Queer how he just looked at me when I came in the door, says Ed. Just as though he was the one belonged to you and I was the trespasser. His eyes. I know, I said. Where's the boy Ed? I'll take him home now. He's in the kitchen, Ed answered, kind of sheepish, eating breakfast. Salisbury's always were the biggest hearted folk in the village. So I took Wessel's Andy back to the store, but instead of talking to him like I meant to, I never so much as opened my mouth the whole way home. I couldn't. He looked too happy. The so first time I'd seen him look anything but glum and peek it. Now he was a changed man. There was a light on his face, and when I say light, I mean light. Once he burst out laughing, and it wasn't the sort of laugh that comes from thinking of something funny. It was just as though he'd seen some great trouble turned inside out and found it lined with joy. He made me think of a bridegroom somehow striding along there in the early dawn. I believe he would have gone straight on past the store but for my hand on his arm he followed me into the back room like a blind man and there for the first time he spoke i shan't work today he says drawing a deep breath again i thought of a bridegroom no i says you'll go to bed and get some sleep yes he says i must sleep he began to peel off his clothes and when i came back an hour later he was sleeping like a baby and smiling he slept well into the afternoon then he got up, shaved, washed, and put on the best clothes he owned. He didn't have only the one suit, but he brushed it till it looked like new. Instead of the blue shirt that he wore around the shop, he had on a white one with a standing collar and a white tie. I found him standing by the window in the back room, looking out to see. Mr. Siles, he says, not turning round. I'm going to leave you. Leave, I says. Yes. When you going? Soon, he says. And then he faced me. That ship, he says, that ship I told you about. He was speaking slow and quiet. It's coming for me very soon. I shan't have to wait much longer now. I feel that it is near, and I'm glad. I thought you didn't want to go, I said, trying to get at the real meaning of his words. I felt like a man in a dark room that's reaching for something he knows is there, but can't quite locate. That was yesterday, he says, smiling like he'd smiled in his sleep. Today I'm glad. Today, I want to go. It's the natural thing to do now. It's so natural and good that I don't mind talking about it anymore. Sit down, he says, and I'll tell you. You've been my friend and you ought to know. I sat down, feeling kind of weak in the knees. By this time, it was beginning to grow dark. A slight mist was forming on the water. I've already told you, he says, about the ship that was always behind my eyes. There was something else, Mr. Siles, something I've never told a living soul. Ever since I was a little boy, I've been seeing a face. It was a child's face to begin with, but it grew as I grew. It was like a beautiful flower that changes, but is always the same. At first, I only dreamed it, but as I grew older, I used to see it quite clearly, both day and night. I saw it more and more frequently until lately. He put his hand to his eyes. It's become a living part of me. It's a woman's face, Mr. Siles, and it calls me. Until last night, I'd never connected this face in any way with the ship and the fog. You see, one was the most beautiful thing in the world, the only beautiful thing in my world, and the other was horrible. But it called me too, and I was afraid, afraid that I would have to go before I found her. He leaned forward and put his hand on my knee. Mr. Siles, says he, in the voice of a man speaking of his bride, I saw that face last night in Mr. Salisbury's old album. "'It was the face of Hope Salisbury. "'I jumped up and away from him. "'My brain had been warning me all along "'that something like this was coming, "'but it was a shock just the same. "'She's dead,' I says. "'She's dead.' "'It was the only thing I could think to say. "'My mouth was dry as a bone. "'Words wouldn't come to me. "'Oh, no,' he cried, and his voice rang. "'Oh, no, Mr. Siles. "'There's no such thing as being dead. "'There are more worlds than one,' he says.' as many more as a man needs, he says. This is only a poor breath of a world. There are others, others. I know, he says, and laughed. I know how it is with men. They think because their eyes closed and their mouths are still and their hearts stop beating that it's the end of happiness. And Maybe it is with some, I can't say. Maybe if folks are entirely happy in this world, they don't need the others." But it's every man's right to be happy, Mr. Siles, and the Lord God knows his business. Trust him, Mr. Siles, trust him. Don't I know? I used to be afraid, but now I see how it is. Lord, help me, I says. What am I to do? Why, nothing, he says, patting my knee. It's all right, Mr. Siles. You go ahead with your life, he says, the same as though I never come unto it. Take all the happiness you can get, Mr. Siles, for that's as God intended. But never think it ends here. I couldn't look at him. There was a blur before my eyes. I got up and went out of the store, heading down to the beach. I wanted to be alone, to sit quietly and think. My brain was spinning like a weathercock in a gale. I must have blundered up the beach a good two miles before I noticed that the mist was thickening. I stopped dead still and watched it creep in, blotting the blue water as it came was like the white sheet that a stage magician drops between him and the audience just before he does his great trick. I wondered what was going on behind it. The sun was setting behind Salisbury Hill. There was a sort of a glow to the fog. It began to shine like a piece of old silver that's been rubbed with a rag. All at once I heard Wessel's Andy say, clear as a bell, Mr. Siles, I'm going to leave you. I turned toward home walking fast, but something kept pestering me to hurry, hurry. I began to run, but I couldn't get ahead of the black fear that was driving me. I saw Wessel's Andy standing at the window and looking out to sea. I heard him say, it's coming for me very soon. I ran till my heart pounded in my side. The beach curved before me like the blade of a scythe, with the old wharf for the handle. The edge of it was glistening in the afterglow, and the surf broke against it like grain against the knife. I was still half a mile from home when I saw a single figure walk out on that shining blade and stand with his arms folded, staring into the fog. It was Wessel's Andy. I tried to run faster, but the sand caught my feet. It was like trying to run in a dream. I called and shouted to him, but he didn't hear. All the shouting in the world wouldn't have stopped him then. Suddenly, he threw out his arms and walked down into the water. It was so near by that time that I could see his face. It was like a lamp in the mist. I called again, but he was in the surf now, and there were other voices in his ears. A wave broke over his shoulders. He struggled on, his hands kind of groping ahead of him. I caught another glimpse of his face. He was smiling. I gathered myself to jump. I remember the foam on the sand and the water swirling underfoot, and the new wave making and the fog over all. I remember thinking of the strong tide and how little a man looked in the sea and then I saw the lucky star. I would have known her anywhere. She was just hauling out of the mist on the starboard tack with all her canvas set. As I looked, she melted in the fog. She that should have been lying fathoms deep. And after that, I only saw her by glances. But I saw her plain. She was no color at all, and there wasn't the sign of a light to mark her. But she came bow on through the water that wouldn't have floated a dory, closer and closer till I could make out the people on her decks. They were like statues carved out of haze. There was a great figure at the wheel and others up forward in smoky oilskins. and at the lee rail I saw a young girl leaning against the shrouds, one hand to her heart, the other held out as though to tear aside the mist. I was in the water and it was cold. A wave picked me up and carried me forward. I saw Wessel's Andy floundering in the trough ahead of me. I swam for him, my hand touched his shoulder. He twisted half about and looked at me. His hair was like matted seaweed over his eyes, and his face was as pale as the dead. But, again, in all that wildness, I thought of a bridegroom. A great wave with a cruel curved edge lifted above us. I made ready to dive, but he flung out his arms and waited. I saw a white boughs riding the crest of it, and the silver belly of a drawling jib, and it seemed to me I heard a laugh. Then the wave hit me. When I came to, I was lying on the beach with some of the boys bending over me. They had heard me shouting and arrived just in time to pull me away from the tide. They never found him. They said it was because of the strong undertow. But I knew better. I knew that Wessel's Andy had gone aboard of his vessel at last, and that all was well with him. Mr. Siles stopped abruptly and drew his hand across his eyes. I found myself staring at the grey wall of fog as though it had been the final curtain of a play. I longed for it to lift, if only for an instant, that I might see the actors out of their parts. But the veil was not drawn aside. Then I heard someone speaking monotonously of a piazza that would be painted on the morrow, and turning a moment later saw Mr. Siles just vanishing in the mist, a smoky figure solely inhabiting an intangible world. I went into my house and closed the door. End of Fog. Recording by Colleen McMahon.